Good morning, or wonderful to have you here at Summer Hill Church uh, this morning. Uh, my name's Steve, I'm the Senior Minister. Uh, if I haven't met you before, I hope I'll be able to grab you um, and have a chat after the service. It'd be great to um, meet you and speak with you then. Uh, I'm not sure if we've got, um, I've got a bit of a, an odd sound. I think it might be the fold-back speaker, if we could um, turn that off, or that'd be great. Ah, wonderful. I'm hearing slightly less of myself from behind myself. Uh, which is a little bit disconcerting. Um, as we work through today's passage, it is quite a rich passage. There's a lot in it, more than we can cover. Uh, on your service sheet, you'll find um, an outline of the talk of what we'll be looking at. At the bottom, there's a QR code. And if you've got any questions uh, about things that I say or things that I don't say, uh, you're more than welcome to scan that code and submit the question. You can do so anonymously if you'd like. Uh, and if we have a chance, we'll see if we can address those at a later point in the service. Uh, we're working our way through John's Gospel, and today we're at chapter 8. Well, no one likes to be kept in the dark, do they? To be kept in the dark, to have the truth hidden from them, to be kept in a state of ignorance, whether by being outright lied to by others, or perhaps simply by being kept out of the loop on something. To be kept in the dark is not something any of us aspire to. Sometimes we might keep others in the dark out of a sense of self-protection or insecurity. Sometimes we'll keep others in the dark because we fear maybe how they might respond to the truth about who we are. Sometimes we keep others in the dark because it feels like too great a risk to let them see the truth about us. But to be kept in the dark is essentially to be isolated from others somehow, isn't it? To, to in some sense, be cut off from being with others, from knowing them. I wonder if you know what that's like, to be kept in the dark. Perhaps even to have a sense that God is even keeping you in the dark. Uh, there are those of us who struggle with that. Uh, a seeming silence from God, an invisibility of God. We wonder whether or not He's keeping us in the dark about who He is and what He is doing. Now, the opposite of keeping people in the dark, of course, is self-disclosure. And one thing the Gospel of John is really crystal clear about is that God has certainly not left humanity in the dark when it comes to Himself. Uh, let me remind you of some of this theme of light and dark and God making Himself known, self-disclosure, right back from the start of our time in John's, John's Gospel. Uh, you'll have these slides, um, these verses up on the slides. Uh, John chapter 1, we were told that the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And in this light, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Two little hints right at the start of John's Gospel of God's self-disclosure, his making himself known in this idea of light coming into a darkened world. And if there's been any uncertainty up until this point about who this light is, in today's passage, Jesus leaves nothing to chance. Do you notice that, how he begins this whole chapter? Chapter 8, verse 12 is where we're going to begin. Chapter 8 of John's Gospel, verse 12. It begins this way. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, 
but will have the light of life. This idea here of God giving a light to his people, a light that they can follow, is not a new theme in the New Testament. In fact, it's, it's right there back at the very start of Israel's existence as a nation. You might remember that as they were being led out of slavery in Exodus, God made himself known as a pillar of fire at night, that, that God's people were able to follow from slavery to freedom. And in fact, that kind of theme of moving from slavery to freedom is one that we'll find expressed more and more as we go through today's passage. Jesus here, in speaking of himself as the light of the world, it's not just speaking about a revelation of information or a revelation of knowledge, but a light that actually leads people somewhere, leads people from something like slavery to something that is freedom and truth. We'll work through this a little bit more later on today and indeed into next week as well. But it's clear that not everyone is predisposed to take Jesus at his word when he declares, I am the light of the world. Let's have a look at how people respond. First of all, in verse 13. The Pharisees, the Pharisees were uh, the religious experts of the day. They were the ones who were most passionate about reading God's word and understanding it. Uh, The Pharisees challenged Jesus. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony isn't valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. Uh, Glance down again to verse 17. Jesus continues with this theme of his witness, the validity of his witness. Jesus says, in your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. As Jesus recognises in these verses, the Jewish law required that for someone's word to be considered a valid testimony, the speaker would need to have a second witness, someone else who would verify the truth of the words that they spoke. You claim to bring light into the world? You claim to shed light on the meaning of human existence? The Pharisees are scoffing. Who else can you point to? Who can validate these outrageous claims that you are making about yourself as you declare, I am the light of the world? Now, of course, unbeknown to the Pharisees, there really isn't anyone else who can point, that Jesus can point to. There isn't anyone else who could possibly act as a referee for Jesus on this point. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been um, uh, one of those people who like social media, especially to do with your jobs. LinkedIn uh, is one of those social media platforms specifically designed for people's work lives. And I, I, I've really rarely ever used it. Uh, but you can fill in your skills and your details, and then other people can act as a, a referee. They can tick the skills and give you a rating and, and testify to just how good or otherwise... Uh, you might be in those claims that you're making about your professional capacity. The thing is, for Jesus, apart from God the Father, 
No one else can actually testify to Jesus' life outside of, beyond, before the creation of the world. There is only the Lord Jesus and God the Father who can testify to that. But the stakes are too high to simply ignore Jesus' words, to hastily dismiss his teaching. Later on, the people who Jesus is speaking about will have to come to terms with whether or not they really do believe that the Father testifies, bears witness to Jesus' claims about himself. But here, Jesus goes on to point out really what's at stake over whether or not they do accept his testimony. Uh, Have a look with me at first of verse 23. Glance down to verse 23. Um, But Jesus continued, You are from below, speaking to the Pharisees there, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus there highlighting the fact that there is no one other than God who can bear witness to who he is. But then glance down again, further down to verse 31. Jesus continues in verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Then they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus has pointed out to them as we've been working through that if they don't accept his words, they will remain in their sin. They will die in their sin. His claim that only the Father is able to validate his testimony about himself, but he says for those who do believe in his words, the truth about him will set them free. Uh, Just as in Moses' days when God's presence as a pillar of fire led his people to freedom from slavery in Egypt, so now Jesus is claiming as light of the world that he will illuminate the pathway to freedom from sin and death. Uh, The Feast of the Tabernacles, uh, you might remember from last week, is the feast that is occurring around about the time that Jesus stands up and declares to be the light of the world. Do you remember the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, what it was celebrating? It was celebrating God leading his people from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. And here Jesus is saying, here I am as the light of the world, once again leading God's people from that which enslaves them to freedom as God's people. It's more than just a little bit ironic then, given the history of God's people, that those listening to Jesus should be so outraged at the thought that Jesus might suggest they are in need of saving. Did you notice their outrage? Have a look at verse 33. Jesus has just said, uh, if you listen to me and hold to my teaching, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In verse 33, they respond, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The irony in this little interaction is that Israel had been formed into a nation 
while they were still enslaved to the Pharaoh of Egypt. Their enslavement, their crying out to be liberated by God's hand was hard-baked into their very DNA as a nation of former slaves. And yet they're here saying, we're children of Abraham, we've never been slaves of anyone. It's as if they've forgotten the most pivotal moment in their whole being as a nation. Just as Israel couldn't have hoped to enjoy full freedom as God's sons while still enslaved to the Pharaoh of Egypt, neither can any of us find peace and rest as God's children unless the Son first sets us free from tyranny of sin and death. And only God the Father is in a position to affirm the words that Jesus speaks are true. And yet these people won't listen to the words of their heavenly Father. Have a look with me at verse 38. Uh, We head here into this little period where it seems that Jesus and the people are are both having a, a difference of opinion about who their father is, who their parentage is. Verse 38, Jesus says, I am telling you that what I have seen in my father's presence and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you are Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. See, friends, Abraham, when Abraham heard from God, when God spoke to Abraham, Abraham believed, trusted God's words. If you really were Abraham's children, Jesus is saying, you'd do what he did. You'd be a chip off the old block. You'd hear and believe, just as Abraham had done when God spoke to him. Instead, Jesus says, God's words, when I speak God's words to you, it provokes you to murder. You clearly have very different spiritual DNA to Abraham, whose name you reckon is on your birth certificate. Sorry to break it to you, Jesus is saying, but your desire to kill me points to quite different parentage. Have a look with me at verse 41 and following. Verse 41. Jesus has just said, you are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies." I don't know if you've ever been um, tempted to sign up to one of those ancestry investigation uh, programs online, uh, Ancestry DNA, um, in which you send off some DNA, they match you up with others from all around the world, give you insights into what your parentage is, uh, what ethnic ba- background makes up your own family. And um, I was just reading about these things the other day, and there were some recommendations that perhaps 
these ancestry DNA companies should also provide some advice on how to have hard conversations with families uh, following on after getting your results. So much family turmoil often happens as surprising details about family parentage and history come out in the wash. How do you have a hard conversation when it turns out that the person you thought was your parent actually isn't? And Jesus is saying here to these people, you have spiritual DNA markers that prove beyond a doubt who you think is your father is not. You have the spiritual markers of the one who was a murderer from the beginning. You have the spiritual DNA markers of the one who spoke lies from the beginning, whose native language is lying. The serpent who lied to Eve in the garden. The one who brought and provoked sin in the world, which we saw followed on straight away with Cain being moved to murder his brother Abel. Jesus is saying, you've got all the DNA markers, not of your heavenly father, but of Satan. But if Jesus dares to throw his own followers' spiritual parentage into question, they're very quick to retaliate with a like-for-like, for-tit-for-tat. Have a look with me at how they uh, hit back, really, uh, in verse 48. Verse 48. The Jews answered Jesus, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my father and you dishonour me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Uh, In terms of Jesus' spiritual parentage, they make two claims. Aren't you a Samaritan? Aren't you demon-spawned? Aren't you demon-possessed? Samaritans, like the Jews, were genuine biological descendants of Abraham. But they were considered to be spiritually compromised, half-caste descendants of Abraham, spiritually illegitimate children. You might remember some of that from back in chapter 4 of John's Gospel when Jesus had been speaking with a Samaritan woman at the well. They'd had that debate about where was the legitimate place to worship God. The Samaritans were considered to be spiritually illegitimate children of Abraham, and that's what they're claiming about Jesus here. As for Jesus being animated by God's own spirit, well, Jesus' followers retort that it's more a resemblance to demons that they see in Jesus than his heavenly Father. It's interesting, isn't it? I wonder if you notice this, that Jesus doesn't seem at all unsettled by being labelled as a Samaritan. He just lets that go through to the keeper. He doesn't doesn't object to being labelled a Samaritan at all. Why might that be? We'll come back to reflect on that in a moment. But on the matter of demon possession, well, both Jesus and those that he's debating with, both of them double down hard. Have a look with me at verse 49 where this Uh, Conflict about Jesus' parentage uh, continues and deepens. Verse 49. 
I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my Father and you dishonour me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my words will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? When Jesus had told the Samaritan woman by the well back in chapter 4 that he could satisfy her eternal thirst, her, her thirst for eternal life, do you remember what she had said to him? She had replied by saying to Jesus, are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well? Now, when Jesus claims that those who believe in him will never taste death, the Jews similarly demand from him, are you greater than our father Abraham? The interesting thing was that when the Samaritan woman had said, are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus had given an answer. Do you remember what the response was? The Samaritans joyfully concluded that Jesus was indeed greater than their patriarch Jacob. They'd turned to Jesus and recognised him a greatness that the patriarchs had never delivered on. In fact, the Samaritans weren't spiritually compromised at all. They were the first to recognise in Jesus one who had been sent from God, one who could give eternal life, and they believed his words with joy. It's not the Samaritans who are spiritual half-castes descended from Abraham, but those who Jesus is now speaking with, who are not at all convinced about the claims that Jesus is making. Have a look with me at verse 56. Verse 56. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Quite a different response to that of the Samaritans, isn't it? I am is how God had first introduced himself to the nation of Israel while they were still slaves in Egypt. Do you remember that? God had said to Moses, Moses says, who am I I going to go and say is coming to save you from the hand of Pharaoh. And God had said to Moses, go and say, I am has sent you. I am is going to lead you to uh, to freedom from slavery. And here Jesus is taking God's own name for himself. Jesus is claiming a share in God's own life from eternity past. But rather than recognising in Jesus their divine saviour, they see in Jesus only a light that's worth extinguishing. What we see here is really what I call the cockroach dynamic. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of walking perhaps into the kitchen or somewhere else uh, in the middle of the night, flicking on the light and seeing cockroaches scatter. I'm sure you've got very clean uh, kitchens. Maybe it was just one cockroach and that was bad enough. But you know that, that sense of light is exposing that which is hidden 
And what does that which is hidden normally want to do? It wants to escape. It wants to flee. It wants to hide so that it's not exposed. And that's how these people are responding to Jesus, the light of the world. They want to extinguish the light because they fear that the light is showing them up. In fact, this is what Jesus had warned, or John's Gospel had warned back in chapter 3. I've got this up on the screen for you. Back in John chapter 3, John had already warned, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage, isn't it? You guys are doing what your father Satan, what your father the devil does. People love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. That was the experience of these people who were speaking with Jesus. Perhaps for some of us, that has been your own experience of Jesus, or maybe that is just what you have feared would be your experience of Jesus. Get too close to Him and you don't like to think about what might be brought into the light. For some of us, that's what will have kept us distant from Jesus for a long time. Maybe what's keeping us distant from coming any closer at the moment. For some of us, that's what will be provoking us to consider maybe slinking further into the darkness just to create a bit of safer buffer between ourselves and the one who brings light into the world. But our experience of Jesus need not be like this. Indeed, fear of exposure is certainly not how Jesus intended the world to experience his light. Uh, Back in verse 28, Jesus says, you will figure out who I am. You'll figure out who I am when you lift me up. That is, when I'm lifted up on the cross. See, Jesus came into the world not primarily to expose sin, but to bear it in himself. Jesus isn't simply a threat to sinners. He came to bear our sin on his own back so that our sin might not need to leave us scurrying from cover for cover to hide it. As light of the world, Jesus' intention, though, was to do something far more wonderful than simply expose our wickedness or evil. Jesus' intent as light of the world was to do something even more wonderful than bearing our wickedness upon himself, if you can believe that. I'm going to jump ahead to John chapter 12. It's up on the screen there for you. Uh, Today's passage, chapter 8, doesn't have a whole lot of Uh, good news in it. It's really just about uh, the grim realisation that these people who were speaking to Jesus didn't want any part of his light. But later on in John's Gospel, Jesus says these words, you are going to have the light just a little while longer, he says to his disciples. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going, Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. (coughs) Excuse me. Two things to note here as we finish, by way of what I hope will be of enormous encouragement. 
Uh, First, Jesus does speak of himself as here being a light that allows us to walk, to be able to see where we're going. Jesus does come as a light in order to show where the pathway is to our freedom from sin and death, that in seeing Jesus, we can see the way to being set free from sin and death. Jesus is a light that shows us what path to walk to freedom. But he's much more than that. Jesus also comes as a light so that we ourselves might become children of light. We ourselves might become that same light, actually become children of light and embody God's radiant character in ourselves. Do you notice there that this picture here that Jesus is speaking about is not just that we would have the light shone in front of us so we would know where to walk. We aren't just set alight with the light shining on us from above. We don't just simply reflect the light. We become children of light. In believing in the Lord Jesus, we will actually get to share in God's own character. Just as those Jesus is addressing in this passage were described as children of their father, the devil, and sharing in his character, the character of a murderer, the character of a liar. Here Jesus is saying those who believe in him will become children of light. They'll share in God's own DNA. What was once cause for hiding in the dark, what was once cause in ourselves for hiding from fear of exposure, will be replaced by God's own light shining from within. God's character of light will become our own character. Isn't that wonderful? It's not just that God takes our character and deals with it, not just that he shines a light for the way to salvation, but he shares that light of character of his own with us. He rewrites our spiritual DNA, that we are light as he is. And friends, that's why, for all those who believe in the Lord Jesus, we do not need to keep to the dark. We do not need to keep for fear of being exposed away from God or distant from God. In the Lord Jesus, we come to share in his own character. And with that comes enormous security and joy and peace. And in the coming weeks, we'll see people who begin to experience exactly that. How about we pray? Dearest Father, we thank you that you have not kept us in the dark about yourself, but that you have entered our darkened world and shone the light of your glory into it in the person of the Lord Jesus. But Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus we don't just get to see who you are, but that in believing in him we come to share in who you are your character becoming ours, your DNA becoming ours, we becoming your children and sharing in your likeness. Father, we ask that you would turn our eyes to the Lord Jesus who bore all our sin so that we might just not be free from the punishment that we deserved, but we might get to share in your very character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.